Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. This is the story that we read in those verses. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herod's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And her mother said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took John's body and laid it in a tomb. As I pray for the Spirit's guidance this morning on this sermon, I would ask that you join me in prayer, and ask for the same thing. Let us pray. Most gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would strengthen us to hear your word, to understand your word, to believe your word, indeed, that your spirit would be at work. By your spirit, Father, help me that I might preach only what you would have me preach that I might be bound by your spirit to proclaim faithfully your word and nothing else. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, this is one of the wilder stories that we come across in the New Testament. It's one of the wilder stories, frankly, that we come across in the Bible because in it we see just exactly how corrupt and how wicked everything is and always has been and always will be. We see the problems of this world that Paul tells us in Galatians we've been delivered from. When we come to this passage, though, 
We're, we're probably, if you're like me, you're like, well, why is this here? What's going on exactly? Jesus just sent out the 12, and then in the next section, they come back and have a powwow with Jesus. And, and here we have again one of these Markin sandwiches where he kind of interrupts a narrative. He interrupts a flow with, with what seems like kind of a random story plopped right in the middle to make this broader point. And this story has to do with a guy that we haven't heard anything about for a few chapters now. And it has to do with with how he died. It's kind of a flashback. Like if you were reading this, you know, you see the little curvy lines come down after verse 15 or 16. And it flashes back to, to something that happened long before but has something to do, apparently, in Mark's mind with what's happening right here. And as we begin to put the pieces together and look at what's going on, I think there are two points that Mark is making by including this story here. First of all, he he wants us to see that the story of, of Herod beheading John the Baptist foreshadows the fate of Christ the apostles, ministers, laymen, and anyone who bears witness to Christ. Second, I think he wants us to see that the story of Herod beheading John the Baptist exemplifies man's fleshy response to the Word of God rightly preached. And so we're going to work through those two ideas from a couple of different angles this morning. First of all, the story of Herod beheading John the Baptist foreshadows the fate of Christ and the apostles and ministers and laymen and anyone who faithfully proclaims the gospel. We we look at this story and it makes sense. Jesus has sent his disciples out, the 12 apostles, go preach the gospel. And he's already told them there will be some who don't accept what you have to say. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. And then this story follows. It's as if it's a warning to them. And by the way, some who don't accept what you have to say will be quite content to kill you, to persecute you, to do all kinds of vile things to you. Because when you come and you challenge their idols, and you challenge what they hold dear, they're either going to repent and turn to Christ, or they're going to fight for the sake of their idols. So it serves as kind of a warning. Of course, he had told them, we read in Matthew chapter 10, 16, that he's sending them out as sheep among wolves. Now, if you don't know anything about sheep and wolves, you know that that's not the situation you necessarily want to be in. You don't want to be a sheep among wolves because your death is imminent. The attacks will come. He told them also in John chapter 15, verse 18, the world will hate you as it hated me. That this This is what you get to go do, disciples. You get to be hated. 
because you follow me and the world hated me as well. And John, later in his first epistle, writes to all of us this same reality. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. See, the story of John the Baptist being beheaded when he challenged the idols of those in power is a reminder of the common fate of so many Christians that have gone before us. It's a foreshadowing of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 being stoned to death for preaching the gospel. It's a foreshadowing of Peter, as church history tells us, being crucified for preaching the gospel. It's it's a story that foreshadows the countless missionaries throughout church history who have been killed for preaching the gospel. But it's also a story, as we see in Acts 4.27, when Luke reminds us that Herod Antipas, this same Herod, was part, he had a role in the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of what those in power would do to Christ. That this one who had John the Baptist beheaded would also have a role in putting Christ to death. So this should hearten us, shouldn't it? You say, how how in the world? Well, because it reminds us that even at his decapitation, John lost nothing before his father. It was only before man that anything was lost. But he was welcomed in before his father. And one day, according to the promise of the gospel, his body will be restored. And this will be made right. The second thing that this story reminds us of or teaches us It exemplifies man's fleshy response to the Word of God. Think about the story. To give us a little bit of history so we understand exactly what was going on here. Herod Antipas, the the particular Herod, there were a lot of Herods or four that are talked about in the New Testament. Herod Antipas, the one that is talked about here, was the son of Herod the Great through his fourth wife, Malthus. Philip, also known as Herod II, was the son of Herod the Great through his, if I remember correctly, third wife, Miriam II. Herodias, the woman at work here, is Herod the Great's granddaughter through his second wife, Miriam I. That's why this sermon is titled All in the Family. Because what is happening here is Herod Antipas wanted to marry his half-niece who was already married to his half-brother. And so when we read the story in history, he convinced her to to divorce his half-brother 
so that he could have her. That's what's going on. And, and so John the Baptist sees this happening and comes and says, um, no. no not, none of this is okay. This is, is a, a violation of truth. It's, it's a violation of true morality. And that's ultimately, we're told, what leads to his beheading. His stand for this truth that's clearly taught in the Bible, clearly taught in Leviticus. This was crossing all kinds of lines. And Herodias didn't like it. She didn't like the conviction that came with the Word of God being preached. Very few of us do. Apart from the Spirit working in us, none of us do. But Herod, it tells us, had a relatively high view of what was going on. It tells us that he feared John. He knew he was a righteous and holy man, and so he protected him. He kept him safe. He heard John gladly, but at the same time was perplexed by him because he challenged him and told him how things actually were. But at this birthday party where his, I don't know, great niece twice removed, I don't know what she would be at this point, but this girl, Herodias' daughter, comes and dances for him in such a way that he says, hey, up to half of my kingdom, ask and it's yours. Now, we don't know, and we've got to be careful here. We've got to be honest that we don't know exactly what is going on here. The, this is the same word for, for a little girl that is used for Jairus' daughter. And, and some commentators love to, to run and say, oh, this must have been just the most like, wildly perverted thing ever to get this guy to give half the kingdom. Maybe, maybe, it doesn't say that. This also could have just been a moment of kind of paternal pride and excitement about his kid doing something that was cool and that other people thought was cool and, and hyperbolically he says, oh, half my kingdom thinking she's going to you know, ask for a new Nintendo game or something. Or whatever they had back then. A new rock to throw. <laughs> but that's not what happens. She goes to her mom who hates John the Baptist. Oh, this troubler. I want him dead. Go ask him for that. And she does. And it happens. Here's John the Baptist's head on a platter and she takes it and gives it to her mom. The story of Herod beheading John the Baptist exemplifies man's fleshy response to sound biblical teaching. We want nothing to do with it. Our flesh wants nothing to do with it. Jesus, as you know, was repeatedly opposed 
not, not by the secular people, but by the religious people until he was finally put to death. Paul's ministry saw the same fate. Again, not, not so much by the secular people, though there were some run-ins there. But it was the religious people who beat him and left him for dead most often, or who ran him out of town. To the point that when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what does all of this have to do with us? Well, if our goal in ministry or in the Christian life is to keep from suffering at the hands of those who are opposed to us or who have been given power over us, or if our goal in ministry or the Christian life is to maintain our preferred manner of life on earth, then we've missed the point of what Christ has done and of what He has called us to. Further, if we co-opt the gospel or Christianity to try and maintain our preferred life by putting in power those who are agreeable to our preferred manner of life so that we may thereby escape suffering, then we've abandoned Christ. And with Peter, we stand when he broke fellowship with the Galatians. See, the issue here is this is the fleshy response to sound doctrine, not just of the world. It is that to be sure. The, the world will, will abide nothing sound from the Word of God, except for maybe love your neighbor as yourself. That, that one's palatable enough. But you get a step or two beyond that, and they want nothing to do with us. But unfortunately, as we see with Herod, who had a high view of Jesus, he thought he was some kind of prophet. He thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. This prophet that he respected and heard gladly. It didn't mean that he believed him. And so at some level we have to look and say, yes, this is often my flesh's response to sound doctrine as well. When our response to, to, to what is taught from Scripture is to behead the messenger through accusation or rejection or slander or broken fellowship or ridicule or belittling them in our thoughts or in self-justification. When that's how we respond to what is rightly taught from Scripture, we're responding with Herod. So often, what we're looking for from Jesus 
is not what he came to give. And when we're reminded of that, we don't like it. I don't. When I'm reminded that that Christ didn't come to make my life comfortable, I don't like it. Because that's what I want from him. I know, I, I, I know, I've got the theology to tell me it's not what I most need from him. I need him dead on the cross and risen from the grave. I need his blood to wash me clean of my sin. But what I want is comfort. Is people to like me. Is life to go well. To get a phone that's not cracked, that would be cool. (laughs) See, our struggle has been for so long to miss what it is that Jesus came to do. I heard a quote this week and I found a longer form of it from an old writer named Alexis de Tocqueville who came and after seeing things in the 1800s in the U.S. said this, they practiced their religion without shame, without weakness, but in the very midst of their zeal, one generally sees something so quiet, too methodical, so calculated that it would seem that the head rather than the heart leads them to the foot of the altar. Not only do the Americans practice their religion out of self-interest, but they often even have place in this world the interest which they have in practicing it. Priests in the Middle Ages spoke of nothing but the other life. They hardly took any trouble to prove that a sincere Christian might be happy here below. But preachers in America are continually coming down to earth. Indeed, they find it difficult to take their eyes off it. The better to touch their hearers. They are forever pointing out how religious beliefs favor freedom and public order. And it is often difficult to be sure when listening to them whether the main object of religion is to procure eternal felicity in the next world or prosperity in this. Too often, as James Edwards in his commentary on this passage talks about when our sacred cows are named, we respond with the same flesh that Herod did. Because we want nothing to do with it. And we want nothing to do with the Christ who would call us to Himself exclusively that He might bring us into His kingdom for eternity. See, that's what Herod was doing here. He and his illegitimate wife 
wanted to maintain the life that they found comfortable. And they were willing to do whatever it took to do that. So what do we do when we see this fleshy response in ourselves? Well, first of all, we must remember what it is exactly that Christ came to do. We must start there. We, we must remind ourselves, as we read in Psalm 2 earlier, that Jesus didn't come to bolster the kingdoms of this world, but He will, with a rod of iron, shatter them, that His kingdom alone might stand. He came not to give us comfort in this present evil age, but to deliver us from this present evil age. Glory, glory, hallelujah. There is deliverance in Jesus Christ. We must remember that. Jesus came bringing a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, of which all who are in Christ are citizens. He did not come so that we could improve the kingdoms of this world or for us to act like any one of them is synonymous with the kingdom of God. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's opposed to it. Every kingdom of man is opposed to the kingdom of God. All of them. Even ours. This is why we must remember why Christ came. Because we've seen over the last 18 months, over the last four years, over the last however long you want to go back, it's not new. It's got the megaphone of social media now, but it's not new. We've seen in bold relief, in technicolor, whatever fun language you want to use, how desperately we're all fighting for these weaker kingdoms. And we've seen our responses, our, our responses, when those kingdoms are challenged in the name of Christ. And we've cut each other off. And we've walked away from each other. And we've, we've slandered one another. And we've mocked one another. And, and, and we've, we've been horrible to one another. To each other. Who claim Christ together. Why? Because like Herod... When our sacred cows are named, our flesh responds. And though, thankfully, it's only been metaphorically, we are quite content to behead each other. And it's to our shame. It is to our absolute shame. And when we do that, 
We're not standing with Christ like we think we are. We're standing with Peter when he withdrew from the Galatians and Paul said to him, you stand condemned. So what do we need? We need to remember why Christ came. To draw us to himself and to him alone. Attaching nothing else to him. Looking to him in faith alone. And being welcomed into the kingdom of God. This story of Herod beheading John the Baptist foreshadows the fate of Christ and the apostles and the ministers and the laymen and all who bear witness to the true gospel. Unfortunately, it's not always bearing witness to what comes from the world. Because it also exemplifies man's fleshly response. A sound doctrine. Not the world's fleshy response. Every man's fleshy response. And so when we feel that in us, we must look to Christ. We must remember what he has done. Why he has done it. And we must sing once again, be still my soul. The Lord is on your side. Father, we thank you for your word. That both slays us and builds us up in Christ. Would you teach us, Father, to believe it? To rest in the finished work of Christ in whom is all our hope. Amen.